Good morning. Come on in, everybody. We're going to gather in, and there are still still good seats down front. If you don't have to sit all the way in the back, Sarah, you can sit in the comfortable chairs. And uh, these are great. We're excited to have these down here. We're going to continue onto the sides, and eventually you will only be able to sit in a comfortable chair toward the front. Anyway, uh, good morning. And is there anybody here? Jim is here. Thank you, Jim. It's good to see you, buddy. Uh, we are in a series on the book of Galatians, and we're talking about freedom. And if you haven't been a part of the series, it's been really good. I encourage you to go back, and you can either podcast or listen uh, via Facebook Live or Facebook Recorded and hear the previous sermons in the series. Where This is week five, uh, where we're looking at Paul's treatise on Christian freedom. And uh, today we're going to be looking at uh, Galatians chapter 2, sorry, chapter 2, and we're going to start at verse 11 when we get to it. But before we do, I wanted to say, you know, this week, as I, I was reading this text and studying and praying and seeing what God might have for us in it, I was also reading a secondary book, and it's called The Silver Chair from C.S. Lewis from the Chronicles of Narnia. Does anybody know the Chronicles of Narnia? Yes, Chronicles of Narnia, some of my favorite books. And uh, I sat down kind of as a pleasure read, and I was like, oh, this is expanding my, my vision of what, what Galatians is talking about. And so actually what I wanted to do was to sit down and read part of it to you. You think that would be okay? I thought about just reading you this, this and instead of preaching, because C.S. Lewis does such a good job. But to give you just a little bit of background, what Narnia books are all about are about children that are called by Aslan, the great king, who is Jesus. Okay, this is all allegory. So Aslan, the great lion or a great king, is Jesus. And he calls people from our world here, this ordinary day-to-day, you know, smog, commuting, going to school, dealing with bullies, you know, going to work, all of that kind of stuff, and calls them out of that world through some sort of doorway into the land of Narnia. And the land of Narnia, <clears throat> excuse me, is really a, it's an allegory or a parable of what the Christian life is. So we're invited out of this, you know, day-to-day hustle-bustle world into what in, for C.S. Lewis is this magical kingdom, but it's really the Christian life. See, when you read these stories, Narnia isn't describing heaven because there's still evil, there's still despair, there's still pain, there's still challenges. Narnia is describing a Christian life that's lived in the power and the presence and in the grace of God. You see, our world of cars and jobs and politics and power, it's our world of shadow freedoms that we talked about that seek to enslave us. Um, This is where the biblical idea of the world is. So this is the world, and Narnia is living into the Christian life. So this is actually my favorite book from the Narnia series, and I'm just going to read you a passage from it. I'm going to sit down up here. I was going to bring a comfy chair and do like grandma, grandpa, sort of reading a story kind of thing. But... um, Now, the background of this particular part of the story, this one is about uh, two, two children, Jill, Jill Pole, and Eustace Scrub. Worst names ever, right? And they go by Pole and Scrub through the whole book. And they go into Narnia, and the, the thing that, that they are called to do is to rescue the crown prince, Rillian, who has been taken kidnapped. He's been kidnapped and taken prisoner by an evil queen, and he's brought, and they don't know this yet, but brought into an underworld, Okay. And the thing about the underworld is this. The people that live there, they have this saying. Let's see. Is it on here? I have the saying. I think it's the next, the next slide says the saying, and I left it down there. So this is what people say about the underworld. Many sink down to the underworld, and few return to the sunlit lands. And the underworld is this dark, 
cavernous cave where you go deeper and deeper and darker and darker and heavier and heavier. And there's little life. And what life is there is all in service of evil. It's like it's the dark places of our life. And they have to travel out of this. They rescue the prince and have to travel out of it. And this is the part where they actually break through the dirt and into out of the underworld and back into Narnia. Okay, let's see if I can do this. So this is the description of Jill getting out. So what happened to Jill was this. As soon as she got her head out of the hole, she found that she was looking down as if from an upstairs window, not as if through a trap door. She had been so long in the dark that her eyes couldn't at first take in what they were seeing, except that she was not looking at the daylit, sunny world which she so wanted to see. The air seemed to be deadly cold, and the light was pale and blue. There was also a good deal of noise going on and a lot of white objects flying around in the air. And it was, it was as, at that moment that she had shouted down to Puddleglum, one of her companions, to let her stand on his shoulders. When she had done this, she could see and hear a good deal better. The noises that she had been hearing turned out to be of two kinds, the rhythmical thump of several feet and the music of four fiddles, three flutes and a drum. She like came out in the middle of a worship service. She also got her own position clear. She was looking out of a hole in a steep bank which sloped down and reached the level about 14 feet below her. Everything was very white. A lot of people were moving about and she gasped. The people were trim little fawns and dryads with leaf-covered hair floating down them. For a second, they looked as if they were, they were moving any which way. Then she saw that they were really doing a dance, a dance with so many complicated steps and figures that it took you some time to understand it. Then it came over her like a thunderclap that the pale blue light was moonlight, and the white stuff on the ground was really snow. And of course, there were stars, stars, staring in the black, frosty sky overhead, and the tall things behind were trees. They had not only got out into the upper world at last, but had come out into the very heart of Narnia. Jill felt she could have fainted with delight, and the music, the wild music, intensely sweet, and yet just a little bit eerie too, and full of good magic, as, is, as the witch's thrumming had been full of bad magic, and it made her feel all the more at home. All this takes a long time to tell, but of course it took very short time to see. Jill turned almost at once to shout down to the others, I say, it's all right, we're out, we're home. But the reason she got none further because she got a snowball in the face. So the reason I wanted to share that part is because when we talk about being a follower of Jesus, we're talking about entering a whole new world. We're talking about entering a whole new way of life. And that way of life is, the best way I can describe it, is open space. My parents live in Montana. They call it the land of the big sky. And if you ever go to Montana, it's true that the sky is somehow actually bigger. I don't know how they do it. It's some trick of you know, nature or something. But the sky is actually bigger. And when we enter into the Christian life, the sky is actually bigger. The, the, the world is more open to us. There's freedom and air and light. And we have such a hard time as followers of Jesus describing this because we get so caught up in all of our rules and all of our ways of being and our don'ts, right? The don't cuss, don't shoot, don't smoke, and don't date girls that do kind of thinking. We get this morality that sticks in us and we get stuck in this closed off 
buttoned, buttoned up or buttoned down way of life that, that doesn't allow us to describe it to somebody else as this open air life. And Lewis does this for us. When he describes Narnia, when he describes coming out of that hole and into this free space with stars and, and dancing and song and, and just this sense of freedom and light and love, that's the life we're meant to live and we're invited into. But many sink down into the underworld, right? We, we get into the dark places of our life and we forget the open air, open sky life that Jesus has opened for us, that Jesus has made available to us, and he allows us and invites us to return again to the sunlit lands. I got to figure out where I'm at because I did all that introduction there. So what we're talking about is, is Paul is inviting us out into that open space. He's inviting us to live in the wide open spaces of Christian freedom where God has set us free to walk in a newness of life, to breathe deep of his grace and his goodness, and to live a joyful, dancing, happy, full life, not a heavy, weighted down, buttoned up, you know, that's not the life that Jesus gave for us. We can have that sort of life outside of the kingdom of God, right? We can go to work, and that can be our meaning. We can, we can have a family. We can build a bank account. And this can be all of the meaning. And we can just go and it's have this drudgery sort of life. But Jesus has invited us into freedom in the midst of that. Joy, light, happiness. That is the, the fullness of the gospel. It's not that Jesus died for you, but that Jesus died for you that you might be free. You might be free. And so Paul's invitation to us is from verse 14. It says, that we need to live consistently with this gospel, to live consistently with the good news that we are free. So walk out now, poke your head out of that dark hole, come out of the underworld and walk in the daylight in the open air freedom that Christ has given us because we are home. We are out of the woods. We are out of the dark. We are out of the grave. So Paul finishes telling a story for him, that was very, very personal. That's what we're going to read today. Last week, we read the first half of it as Paul uh, going after the other apostles, particularly Peter, who he calls Cephas here. And I realized, I was like, why does he keep calling him Cephas? So Jesus says to Peter, you are no longer Cephas, but you are now Peter or Petra, the rock. And on this church, I will, I will, or on this rock, I will build my church. That's what Jesus says to Peter, if you guys remember. But now Paul keeps calling him Cephas. And I think it's because he's saying, look, Peter, you're not acting like Peter. You're acting like Cephas. You know, you're acting like your old self. The church that is supposed to be built on you, you're not acting like it. And it's like this is shifting ground that you're doing. And so he goes after him because Peter is not accepting the Gentile Christians, which is you and me. And so now he completes his story, and, and he's going to give us some language, some words that we use. They're big theology words. Paul is a really smart guy, really smart guy. I mean, super smart. And he just starts using these massive words that don't mean a whole lot to us in our day-to-day -day lives. But what Paul's trying to do is he's, just, he's describing Narnia. He's describing this open-air, free life that we've been given and why we're out there and why, why it is that we can walk around and live in this freedom and in this joy, why we can struggle against our sin and not be stuck in it, why we can live into a new identity in Christ and not be stuck as old Cephas. And here's what he has to say. I'm going to read this text to you. Okay. Somewhere. Um, okay, here we go. Verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, so Peter went over to visit Paul later, 
It says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For until certain people came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But after they came, he drew back and kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision faction. And the other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before all of them, if you, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is, first big word, justified, not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by doing the works of the law so that no one will be justified by the works of the law. But if in our effort to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. But if we build up the very things that once I once tore down, then I demonstrate that I am a transgressor. For through the law, I have died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing." See what I mean? We talk about this, we read this passage, lots of big words, justified, 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 and we don't get that sense of that big free open space, that big free life that Paul is inviting us into. But the truth of it is that these words meant to something to the people it was written to. This is one of the, the principles that we're, we're hitting home in these sermon series is that this was not written to us, but it was written for us. This was written to Gentile and, and, and Jewish Christians in the region of Galatia 2,000 years ago. It meant something to them, but it still means something for us today. It is still for us. And so we're going to have to tease it apart and figure out what is for us today. So we've been invited by Paul and by Jesus into this open country to live consistently with the truth of the gospel. Christ leads us out of the confines of this world and into the open air of God. So Paul is using this story to, to lead us into it. He uses this word justified over and over and over again. Justified, justified, justified. It is such a churchy word. Here's what it means, okay? At its, at its core, what it means is to be made right, right? That's all it means. So we could just take that word out of there, and if you want to, you could read the passage again and take out justified and put made right, all right? And it's not like, it's, it's not like being decorated, right? We, we can go out, we can paint the hallways and still have problems behind the walls, right? We can go out and we can fix the facade of the theater out there. Tyler and I have been wrestling with this, but the water keeps leaking down the front of the building and there's going to be problems behind it. It's not decorating or putting a facelift over it. It's made right. It's not, not cleaning it up. It's, it's really more like a broken bone that's been set and healed correctly. It's made right and put back together so that it functions as it was intended, as it was initially created to, made right. And not in relation to itself, but on all things here, it's in relationship to God. 
first and foremost, you have been made right in relationship to God. Before you came to Christ, God could look at you and say, this is broken. You come to Christ, and God comes, and he looks at you, and he sees you through Jesus and says, this has been made right. And now we can have a relationship. Now we can know one another. Now we can grow together. Now we can build something, and you can walk in the freedom of God. You have been made right. Our fundamental being, the, the language that the staff has been working with and, and some of the men in the church is the soul, right? It's, it's the deepest part of you. It is, it is your mind. It is your body. It is your spirit all wrapped into one, pulled together, unified at your soul level. You have been made right, set right in relationship to God. And that means for each and every single one of us who have brought Jesus into our life, who have invited him in, that you are no longer separated from God in any way, shape, or form, no matter who you are, what you do, what things you're caught up in or stuck in, you are now made right. And in the presence of God, you live in this open-air freedom. And that's so hard for us to accept. That's what we talked about last week, right? We just, the being accepted in the presence of God is so hard for us to believe sometimes, but this is the truth. You are accepted because you've been justified. Paul is like, remember, we, we don't do things that make us right before God. We, we can't do it. There's just nothing that we can do that would make us right before God. God did it all for us. He justified us. We are never justified apart from God. It is only in a relationship with him that this can happen. We can't fix it or make it happen on our own. We can't go back to requiring people to do something like being circumcised or eating certain foods or behaving certain ways. We can't go back to making people perform to be in a relationship with God. We've been justified. It's done. It's over. That's it. That's all that needed to be done was Jesus coming for us and justifying us. And when we tried to do that the first time, it didn't work. We tried making people live by the law. It didn't work. When we tried as churches to make people live and act in certain ways and dress certain ways and follow certain dietary laws and wear black clothes or never smile or never laugh, there's all things that have happened in church history. When we've tried to make people do these things, it didn't work. They didn't justify them before God because the law does not justify us, which is the second phrase that Paul uses to describe this open-air freedom. The first one is you're just justified. You're just out there, and you're free. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. You come to Jesus, you are free, and you can walk in this open-air life. The second one is it's not by works, verse 16. The law, the whole circumcision thing, eating the right things, wearing the right clothes— it didn't work. Now, those things don't seem like a big deal to us today. It's like, huh, I have absolutely no connection to that. None. It's not a big deal for us today. But again, this is not written to us. It's written for us. So how would we look at it today? How is it that we do the same things today? What Paul means by this statement is uh, that not by the works of the law is that it's the acts that we perform in order to get God's approval. Okay, the things that we do religious or moral behavior or activity designed to save our own skin. Good behavior or religious behavior that is performed because somebody else is looking. So now you now apply that to yourself. Like, what things have you done in your life to make yourself look good for somebody else? Here's some of the things that I've done. Embellish the truth, you know. I exaggerate. Make things seem bigger and better than they are. So you think, wow, that guy's really cool. 
thing when we pray, you know, when we come to a group prayer and we pray a really long, massive, flowing prayer, like everybody's thinking, oh, he's so spiritual. You know, you know everybody's got one eye open looking at you going, oh, man, that person's so amazing. I can't even believe it. I just feel so not spiritual in their presence. We put on an act or a show so that other people would think that we're more spiritual. You know, we, we, we can do our devotions. We can, we can pray. We can feed the poor. All of these things for God so that we look good. But none of them work. This good behavior or religious behavior does not justify us, but only Jesus. See, Christians, we believe a lot of things, right? We have a lot of beliefs, but we don't actually believe everything, Eugene Peterson says, in a lot of ways, Christians are really the least religious people in the world. We don't believe in good luck charms, like unwashed basketball socks, crossing our fingers, wishing upon a star. We don't believe in horoscopes. It doesn't matter too much whether Capricorn has crossed the plane of cancer, whatever that means. Uh, you know, we, we don't believe in the world's promises that buying things or having big bank accounts will make us happy and fulfilled. We don't buy into the world's promises that having more power or having more sex will make us happy. We don't, we don't buy into the world's curses that tell us that if you don't buy into those things, you're going to be worthless and powerless and rejected. We don't believe in a lot of things. And surprise, many people may be surprised, but we don't believe in good works. The heart of a Christian does not believe in good works. Being good and doing good does not make us good. Let me say that again. Being good and doing good does not make us good. And it certainly does not set us free. Why? Because you can do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. You can go to church or a Bible study. You can change your language, your behavior, your sexual ethics, your moral standards. You can give to a cause. You can tithe. You can feed the homeless people. You can go to third world countries on mission trips. You can fight for justice by buying fair trade coffee like we did here or helping countries go, you know, you know just going out and doing whatever you can to help other countries. You can fight for justice. I just did that one. Um, there we go. By uh, building awareness of sex trafficking, sex trafficking, you can take up arms and fight for freedom or stand up for the underdog. You can do all of this and you can do it for the wrong reasons. Because people do it all the time. Because it makes them feel good about themselves. It makes them feel like all the dark underworld stuff in their life is somehow okay because it's been covered by all the good. If you look at Instagram or Facebook, you can watch it happen day after day after day. People are like, ooh, look what I did. Here's a sandwich for this homeless man. And they're taking a picture of them handing a sandwich to the homeless man. And everybody goes, wow, they're such great people. They have so much money, and they're helping the homeless man. And they're polishing an image. And we all do it in one way or another. We're seeking a sense of rightness within ourselves through right actions. Being made, by God, made right by God, it's a voluntary thing. We choose it. We say, yes, God, make me right. It is a, it is a voluntary action. But here's the paradox that we can't work it up by self-determination. We can't do it on our own. We can't make it happen by doing good and right things. We can't will it. We can't force it. We can't make it happen. The world has so many plans and ways for us to go about getting this sense of rightness. We can imitate heroes, listen to wise teachers. We can read self-help books. We offer them around here. Uh, we have lots of them. We get, we get the right diet or the right look or the right morality or the right rhythm of life or the right people. 
They might improve us. They might make our life seem a little better, but they can't make us right. And we get caught in a cycle, which is really an underworld cycle of trying to get it right, but never walking out in the open air freedom that God has for us. Because they never force us to deal with the one person we have to deal with. And it's not you. It's God. We can never be right if we don't deal with God. We have to deal with him if we're ever going to live freely. The third verse in here, the third line in here, though, that really stood out to me was this verse from four, verse 17. And it says, found to be sinners. So of all these people that are, that are out in this open-air life, they've been justified by God, they're starting to deal with God, and yet they're found to be sinners. It's such a weird verse in the Bible, like, thrown in there. And it's as, as though somebody has gone around and they dug up some dirt on Paul, right? They're like, oh, Paul, he's so, he's so righteous. He's bringing all these Gentiles in and changing everything. But let's find out what we can about him, you know. And so people, they send out the uh, private investigator to go look into Paul's life. And they find out that Paul has a little bit of pride in him and that he is sometimes maybe, you know, prone to explosive anger at other people when they don't do the right things or say the right things. And he's just flat rude when it comes to Peter because he doesn't even call him by the name that Jesus gave him. He calls him Cephas over and over again. This guy's a sinner. And Paul is like, of course I am. What did you expect? What did you expect me to be? I'm a sinner. This is what we are. Aren't we all? Yes, we've been justified. Yes, we've been saved. Yes, we're walking in this open-air freedom. But no, it hasn't all changed. We are all sinners. Of course I'm a sinner. It's so refreshing, right? Because Christians, we don't come up with that way. When, you, when people walk through the doors of a church, they often expect to see righteous people. They expect to see good people. They expect to see sometimes kind people, which would be really nice if that were always true, that the people in the church were kind. But what they encounter is what they call hypocrites, right? These guys are such hypocrites. They say they love everybody, but they didn't really love me very well. They treated me like garbage. Of course that's what you're going to get because the church is filled with people, it's filled with sinners. And Paul just names it as it is. Instead of trying to pretend that it's not, instead of trying to pretend that things aren't what they are, he just says, of course I'm a sinner. It is so refreshing to see this honesty and this vulnerability. We are all sinners, and we're not going to change that by trying harder. Hold on to that. We are all sinners, and we are not going to change that by trying harder. You can take EHS and EHR consecutively and do all of the things in it exactly as we teach you, and you will still, at the end of it, be a sinner. You're like, well, why should I try? Why should I keep going? Why should I keep trying? Because we're invited to learn to live out in this open air, free life. But it means we don't have to hide who we really are. We don't have to whitewash our reputations or disguise our hearts. I'm really good at that. Can I tell you that? I catch myself all the time, whitewashing my reputation and disguising my heart. The things that are the pride, the, the anger, the, the self-loathing that sometimes comes up, all the things that just happen in all of our hearts, all those underworld behaviors, try to just kind of wash over them. I don't, I don't want to be a sinner. Who wants that, right? I grew up in a church where the pastor would just go, sinners, and shout at us and point at us, and you would just shrink in your seat. But I want you to know that you are free. You are free. God loves you. You are justified and have a relationship with God even though you are a sinner. How many people have you known 
in your life that generally deal struggle with blaming others for their behaviors? You know, sometimes I ask you guys, hey, amen, and sometimes there's an oh me, right? And this is one of those oh me moments for me, like blaming others, coming up with an excuse for why you did this or did that, why you, the simplest of things for me sometimes, you know, just had a wrong answer on a, you know, just trying to do the math on something. I'm like, oh, man, if I, only I wasn't this way, and we just kind of blame it on our, our education or this or that. We blame our behaviors on other people on other reasons, other causes, the reason that we're a sinner, the reason that we're broken, and we refuse to take responsibility for our messiness. And when we do that, when we refuse to admit that we're sinners, we take away, and I love this word agency, you know, it's like an insurance agency or the federal, what is it, FBI, Federal Bureau, well, there's no agency in that. They call it the agency, right? CIA, that's it. That's the one I was looking for, the CIA, Central Intelligence Agency. Agency means you have power to act, okay? It means you have power to do something. And when we blame our problems and our sin on other things, oh, if if only I didn't grow up in that family, I wouldn't be this way. If only somebody hadn't given me that first drink when I was 17. If only I hadn't started smoking. If only somebody hadn't handed me this, this drug or this thing. If only, if only these things hadn't happened. If only I hadn't lived the life I lived, in the place that I lived, under the circumstance I lived, I would be a really great, free, whole person. When we blame, we give up our agency to change. We are incapacitated to live freely. But when you accept yourself, when you say, hey, I I am a sinner, I I have a problem, I have issues, I have stuff that's holding me back, when we accept ourselves just as we are, just like God does, it puts us in the touch with the reality of who we are, and then there we can discover spaces in which we can experience forgiveness, grace, restoration, wholeness, change through Jesus. We can experience growth in our relationship with God as we face our stuff. But it starts with saying, I'm justified, but I'm still a sinner. Two more phrases that really stood out to me, and one of them I want to deal with fairly quickly. is this crucified with Christ. Man, Christians like to throw this one around. Oh, I've been crucified with Christ. Oh, I've been crucified with Christ. And in a way, it's a way of getting out of this, I am a sinner, right? It's, it's like, yeah, I screwed up in the past, but now I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. This life I live in the flesh is lived through Christ. And that's great. It sounds good, but it's difficult to live out. It's actually one of the more difficult lines in this, this, this whole passage, because to be crucified is horrible, right? It's terrible. It's painful. And if you read it, read it literally which some people do, that can't be right, right? Reading that I've been crucified with Christ, literally. There are places in South America where people actually every Easter crucify one another and then come off the cross and live a new life. They actually go through physical beatings and, and crucifying themselves, and that's just insane. Just a side note, it's really interesting what we read literally and what we don't read literally. It's such a big political thing in the church, like, I read the Bible literally. No, you don't. Nobody reads the Bible literally, or your hair wouldn't be cut, and you'd be wearing hats, and you'd be eating certain things. Nobody does. Crucify yourself. Then we're talking about reading it literally. The crucifixion of Jesus ended his life, but when that life ended, a new life was possible. 
It's just like Jill coming through the hole in the ground. The life that she was living underground in the underworld is now dead, and she breathes the open-air life of Narnia. It's suddenly, I'm alive. And what Paul is saying here is like, when you came to Jesus, you died with him. And the death was one that was made, has, that death has made possible a whole new way of life. Where we walk in the reality of who we are, yet in the freedom that God has given us. And it means for us that this isn't a weekend thing. It doesn't mean that we come to church on Sunday and we live the Christian life on Sunday, but then Monday we go back to all of the things that we're caught up in. No, you died. <laughs> and now a new life is possible. You, you died when you accepted Jesus, and now you're walking in open-air freedom. It's not just a weekend warrior sort of behavior. It's a whole new life that you've been invited to to live in community with others, to, to dance the dance of worship, to breathe the open-air life of God. The old way of life in which you worked for your righteousness, in which you worked to look good for God and for others, in which you blamed others for who you were and your shortcomings, that is all dead. And you are now free to live without the pressure of having to perform for somebody else. You're, li- you're free to live without the pressure of trying to make yourself right with God. And this isn't something that's just for a Christian elite, for certified Christian leaders who are set apart to do all the exciting and great and wonderful things like painting and fixing coffee bars and doing that stuff or going on mission trips. This is for all of us. There is no hierarchy of Christianity. We have all died. We've all been invited into this new life. T.S. Eliot said this. He said, the end is where we start from. He was a poet back in the day. The end is where we start from. The end of that life is where our new life in this open-air freedom begins. The end of one life is the beginning of the next. And the best way to describe for Paul and for you and for me this open-air free life that we walked out of this dark underworld and into open-air freedom of God is the grace of God. It's the best description. It's the atmosphere in which all of this exists, that our whole life is lived, this grace of God. If, you are, if you're building something in your garage, you are living and breathing in the grace of God. If you're in a fight with your spouse, you are living and breathing in the grace of God, even if your spouse isn't giving you grace. If you are struggling with parenting, you are living in the grace of God, even if your kids aren't giving you grace. If you're having a hard day at work, you got a flat tire, it doesn't matter. It is all lived in the context of the grace of God. It's the atmosphere, the air that we breathe. What this means is, grace literally means gift. Just one word, just one word translation, gift. Everything that you have, everything that you experience, everything that you struggle with is a gift. It's a gift from God. Each morning we wake up and we walk out of our houses into an existence that is utterly given by God. And I got to tell you, Monday mornings, that is really hard for me to buy into. Okay? Like when my eyes wake up and I get out of bed, I'm like, oh, another day. Oh, it's Sunday. I got to go to church. And we have this whole sense of like, oh, all these things I got to do. It doesn't feel like freedom. It doesn't feel like, but the whole, your whole existence is a gift. It's a gift. God shares who he is and what he makes. He, he gives and shares his love, his salvation, his provision, his pardon. God is not just a just right? We throw that word when we're praying a lot of times. God, would you just do this? God, would you just do that? It's like, I don't want to ask for too much, so if we could, you know, just come across the line a little bit, just this. God, like, 
he's a glad giver. That's what Julian of Norwich, a 13th, 1300s uh, nun from the year 13th, I think that's the 12th century? I don't remember how that works. Maybe it's the 14th century. Who knows? But 1300s, Julian of Norwich, she said, God is a glad giver. And what that means for her is that God isn't focused on the cost of the gift. He's not focused on the need for the gift. He is focused entirely and solely on the delight in the one in whom he is giving the gift. God gives you your existence. God gives you grace. God gives you power to walk in a new way of life, and he is glad to do it. He He is delighted in you as he does it. God is a glad giver. And you don't have to go on through your life grabbing and taking and working and striving, but instead you go on receiving. We live each day receiving, allowing God to place into our hands all that we need to step into the person that God is inviting us to be. Sinners, yes. Saved by grace, yes. Living life as a gift, so instead of living in a closed, tight space as a Christian, we can walk out into this open air and explore and discover the free life. We can receive all that God gives us. This is the free air of the life of God. And like I said, it's all of these theological words that, that get us like bound up and we forget, like, how do I walk and live that out? Justified by God's grace and not by works. We're invited to live in this free, Narnian-like world, and yet the air isn't quite as pure, right? It's, it's tainted a little bit. It's, it's got some pollution. There's lies that we buy into. There's lies that I buy into. There's insecurities, insecurities that you have, insecurities that I have, doubts, doubts that you have about God, about the Bible, doubts, doubts that I have about God and about the Bible. There's failures when we fail to live up to the standard that we set for ourselves or think God has for us, and yet we're invited to live in the open air, in this polluted open air that we have, and not be stifled by the underworld. And that's why Paul calls us to resist, like we talked about last week, resist going back resist the underworld. It only makes sense in terms of sickness and pain and sin. It only makes sense in our definitions of ourselves that do not involve God. We're invited. Paul is saying to Peter, we can't go back to that. We can't, now that we've poked our head out of that bank and into this new life, we can't turn around and go back in the hole. We're off the hook. We're not sentenced to live our lives in the underworld, powerless to set ourselves free. And it isn't our goodness or our rightness that makes us free. It is God and God alone. So my closing question that I want to give to you this morning, just to ponder for a moment, is this. What is one act that you perform for the approval of God or for others? What is one way in which you're not living in the open air, freedom, not living in the grace of God, not living life as a gift, but living it as a performance for somebody else? What is just one way in which you do that, that God may be inviting you to step out of and into the open-air freedom of God? I'll give you a moment of silence.
We're going to close with a prayer here in a moment. I'm going to invite you to, to stand, and, but don't yet. Um, I just want to say something about this. I struggled with this message this week because, uh, for me, I kept coming up against my own stuff in it. I kept coming up, like, you know, God was, when, when pastors point like this, we always have three, at least three more pointing back at us, right? I try to get my thumb out there, so it's, it's at least two at you and three at me. I like that ratio better than four at me and one at you, but feels a little better somehow. But I kept coming up against my own stuff, and, and I don't like to preach a sermon that I haven't yet got, Okay, I, don't, I, I try not to. It's really difficult because we're preaching every week, and it's hard to grow at that pace for anybody. But here's the thing about this sermon. Um, in archaeology in the Middle East and the ancient Near East, like Israel and places like that, there's these sites that they call a tell. And what it is, it's like a big mound that a city has been built on. And when they clear away that city, there's another city beneath it that they find. They find the ruins of another city. And when they clear that away, they find it. Because cities have just been, you know, it was a war, like Ukraine or whatever. They come in and they wipe out Kiev and they build a new one. It happened in World War II. And the Russians came in the first time. They wiped it out and they built a new city. Now they're wiping it out again. They build a new city. And there's these ruins underneath. God has this tendency in our lives to take us back to the very same places. Clears the rubble, and you think, "Oh, I've worked through it." You know, "Oh, I'm finally free." Oh, I've been set free from this blame. I've been set free from pride. I've been set free from anger. And then, like a couple years later, you find yourself sitting down and you're journaling, or you're visiting with a spiritual director, or you blow it somehow, and you go, "Oh, oh, Jesus, you've brought me back to the exact same spot." And we're digging here again. We're digging here again. And that's what this sermon is. It's a tell. It takes you back to this place in your life, and each time you hear it, this is why we have to talk about being justified, saved by grace, set free, living in open-air freedom over and over and over again, because God wants to keep taking you deeper and deeper and deeper in Him. The psalmist says, deep calls to deep. It sounds really nice when you read it in the psalm. What does that mean? That's what he's talking about. Deep, the deepness of God is calling to the deepness of your soul to go deeper and deeper and deeper in Him. And so that's why we keep coming back to these words, because we want to live in open-air freedom with God. God's meant to set, you're, this is like, you should be so happy and joyful when you're walking around. Christians should be the most lovely people in the world because we've been set free, not because we're getting it right. So let's do that. Let's live in that way. And then, you know, we're going to fail. We're being found to be sinners. Oh, well, we're going to work through it, and God's going to take us back to it. We can walk in that grace with each other. The prayer this morning that I want to pray, and I'm going to have you stand with me now as we pray it to close, is from our, our Lent devotional. I wanted to point you back to this. This is so good, guys. It's just one devotional for the week. You can read it as many times as you want, but there is a prayer in it for this week, and it's a beautiful prayer from this guy named Ted Loader um, who wrote this, and I have it up here on the screen, D don't I, Carrie? Okay, good. I was like, do I have it? I can't remember if I did it last night or not. So let's pray this prayer. Um, how about this? I'll read it through one time so that you're not just praying words that you're reading. You know, like you actually heard it and you can say, oh yeah, I agree with that. So I'm going to read it through once. Then I'm going to invite you to pray it out loud with me, okay? Oh God, of such truth as sweeps away all lies, of such grace as shrivels all excuses, come now and find us, for we have lost ourselves in a shuffle of disguises and in the rattle of empty words. We've been careless of our days, of our loves, of our gifts and chances. Our prayer is to change, O oh God, not out of a despair of self, but for love of you. 
and for the selves we long to become before we simply waste away. Let your mercy live in and through us now. Amen. If you, I just want to invite you to pray that prayer with me this morning and make that your prayer this week. Would you join me from the beginning? O God of all, such truth as sweeps away all lies, of such grace as shrivels all excuses, come now and find us, for we have lost ourselves in a shuffle of disguises and the rattle of empty words. We've been careless of our days, of our loves, of our gifts and chances. Our prayer is to change, O God, not out of despair of self, but for love of you and for the selves we long to become before we simply waste away. Let your mercy move in and through us now. Amen. God, I pray over this congregation that we would walk in your grace, a grace that shrivels our excuses, that we would discover the truth that we have been justified by you, and that that would sweep away all the lies. God, we confess that we've lost ourselves but we want to find ourselves again in you. And I pray that this church would be a people who are discovering themselves over and over again in the light of your grace. May your face shine upon us, and may you give us peace as we walk in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you sing the doxology with me? Praise God from whom all blessings Amen. Usually I like to tell you that Jesus loves you, and I hope you know that, but Jesus has also justified you. He has made you right, so go live in that rightness, not trying to find your own rightness, but live in God's rightness, set free by him and in his love, and know that Heidi and I love you too, right where you're at, doing our best, love each other in Jesus' name. Amen. We will see you guys next week back here for more Galatians. And there's extra time, so go hang out before you get your kids. Don't rush them off. They're just enjoying their classes, I think.